We get it. Drivers should grow hybrid, better yet, all electric. But China has a lock on the batteries and the stuff to make them. How the Biden administration plans to change that. It's not just about the United States. We don't want China to control the supply for the whole world. For Saturday, March 4th, it's All Things Considered. Michelle Martin. Also this hour, voters are fed up with violence and crime. We asked two people who do research in this area what really works and how do we get past the politics. It's hard to sort of strike the right balance, but that's exactly what we need. We need balance. And music by the much-loved hip-hop group De La Soul is streaming, finally. May I cut this dance to introduce myself as the chosen one to speak. That's all coming up, but first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A British intelligence report says two major supply bridges into the embattled eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut have been destroyed. But as NPR's Yulian Haidar reports, Ukrainian officials insist they have control over the area. It's unclear who destroyed the bridges on both sides of Bakhmut's downtown area. Both served as major routes for Ukrainians who have been holding out from a Russian siege since last August. One of the bridges gave the Ukrainians access to fight in the eastern half of the city, while the other bridge gave Ukrainian forces and civilians a clear escape route to the west. Russian state media claims Ukrainians blew up the bridges to slow Russia's advance on Bakhmut ahead of a withdrawal. Ukrainian officials won't comment on the bridge blasts, but they say a retreat is not yet in the cards. Meanwhile, the Associated Press reports that Ukrainian forces have set up temporary bridges to get civilians out of the city safely. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. China's annual session of parliament starts this weekend. Lawmakers are expected to approve a sweeping reshuffle of government jobs, a new economic growth target and budget that will likely include a boost in defense spending. NPR's John Ruich has more. Wang Chao, a parliament spokesman, said China's defense spending has been appropriate and reasonable. As a share of GDP, it's been kept basically stable and is lower than the world average, he said. Last year, the Chinese parliament approved a 7.1% increase in defense spending. It's a figure that many watch closely. Beijing has been implementing a sweeping multi-year drive to modernize its military, adding assets like aircraft carriers and hypersonic missiles. Wang said China's military modernization will not pose a threat to any country, though. Instead, he said it'll be a positive force for safeguarding regional stability and world peace. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. A powerful storm system that's raked the continental U.S. is heading to the northeast today with wind, rain, and snow. NPR's Amy Held reports the storm's snowfall in the west continues to cause problems, and storms and tornadoes in the south have left at least nine people dead. Strong winds and tornadoes toppled tractor trailers and trees from Texas to Kentucky, causing hundreds of thousands of power outages as far north as Michigan. And in California, people are still trapped from as much as 10 feet of snow. In the San Bernardino Mountains east of L.A., Stephen Holyfield is holed up with his family. The last information we were told is that it could be seven to ten days before somebody plows out. These people up here, we don't have supplies to last seven to ten days, and we certainly don't have propane. So we're going to be in dire situations. National Guard troops are working to reach people clearing roadways and shoveling walkways. Meantime, another West Coast storm system could bring several feet of fresh snow farther north in the Sierra Nevada and Cascade Ranges. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. A state response team is helping a Cape Cod nursing home deal with a deadly COVID outbreak. Four residents at the Windsor Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in South Yarmouth died this week. The State Department of Public Health has a team of licensed nurses and certified nursing assistants at that facility to help provide care. An investigation is underway into the death of a passenger on a business jet that hit turbulence after taking off from Keene, New Hampshire. The National Transportation Safety Board says the jet was on its way to Virginia when it ran into trouble on Friday afternoon. The jet with five people on board was forced to divert to Bradley International Airport in Connecticut. The Worcester District Attorney's Office is expanding services for children who have witnessed overdose or violence in their home or neighborhood. Worcester DA Joe Worley says children are often the forgotten victims of drug-related trauma. If we don't do something with the children who have seen a parent overdose, who have seen a drug deal, who have seen a drug-related stabbing or domestic violence over alcohol and drugs, we know that there's about a 50% chance they'll be involved in the criminal justice system themselves. The effort is possible due to a $1.6 million grant from the U.S. Department of Justice. Governor Healy will join Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and other political leaders for a gala to support people with autism and their families. More than 1,000 people are expected to attend the Night Gala for Autism. It's at the Convention Center in South Boston. It's being organized by Teamsters Local 25. Sports Bruins beat the Rangers 4-2 today at the Garden. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the rain and snow may soon be over but some snow showers could linger at the coast. Minor additional accumulation of a coating to an inch in spots, the highest reports of snow where they were expected north and west of Boston. The wind is still howling out there at the coast especially. Numerous gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour, isolated gusts to 60 from Cape Ann to Cape Cod through early evening. The wind will subside tonight gradually, low temperatures in the 20s with clearing skies. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with highs in the 40s. 35 degrees at 5.06. WBUR supporters include the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. If you're in the market for a new car, then you've probably already started digging into those new car guides and paying attention to those glitzy ads. And if you haven't already gone there, you're probably asking yourself, do I want to go electric or hybrid? The Biden administration would like you to. The administration wants at least half of new car sales to be electric in 10 years. To make that happen, car manufacturers need batteries, lots of them. But here's the thing. China has a tight grip on the materials and production needed to make those batteries. According to the International Energy Agency, China made 75 percent of the world's lithium-ion batteries in 2021. The U.S. made only 7 percent. This is yet another area where the U.S. and China are competing on the global stage. So we thought this would be a good time to ask how the U.S. can make progress on electric cars and renewable energy when China dominates the market. We call Amos Hochstein for that. He's the special presidential coordinator for global infrastructure and energy security. In that role, he advises President Biden on energy as a national security matter, and his portfolio runs across agencies. So we thought he'd be a good person to talk about this, and he's with us now. Mr. Hochstein, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Michelle. 
really great to have this conversation. Well, thanks for that. So to start us off, is the U.S. in a race with China to acquire the materials for these car batteries? I think we're in a race, not necessarily with China, but we're in a race to ensure that we have for the United States a diversified sourcing of these batteries and solar. So it's not just about the battery. So if you think about the way you just presented it, Michelle, we have the battery in it has a number of components and the car has even more components. And they all come from places like Sub-Saharan Africa, from South and Central America, Southeast Asia. And we have to source those. So one thing President Biden wants to do is make more of those batteries here at home. We want to do more mining here at home, but we know we can't mine in the United States for everything that we need because we're such a big economy. And it's not just about the United States. We don't want China to control the supply for the whole world, just like we didn't want Russia to control the supply of energy for its neighbors. So we have to learn from the mistakes of the Russia war and now implement that here and make sure that when you buy that electric vehicle or you install that solar panel, that it's not controlled by one country. Hmm. So a fact sheet released by the White House last month said, quote, the U.S. is increasingly dependent on foreign sources for many of the processed versions of these minerals. Globally, China controls most of the market for processing and refining for cobalt, lithium, rare earths, and other critical minerals, end quote. As I said, this is from the White House. Yeah. How, how did we get to this point where China essentially has control over this market and the U.S. is playing catch up? Over the last 10 years, China has invested in acquiring mines in primarily Africa and some in South America. So they own a lot of mining. They own a lot of the refining and processing of those materials. So when they come out of the ground, you got to turn them into battery grade material. And then they want to build the batteries. And we wanted things cheap. So we were willing to buy whatever was on the market at the lowest cost. China then reduced the cost, subsidizing it. We bought the cheap stuff from them. And our own industries went out of business. Hmm. Why, why, though? I understand how this happened. You've just told us. But why did this happen? Um, it seems that there has been a movement in the U.S., uh, an interest in um, renewable energy for some time. There's certainly a constituency for it. Or, you know, I, I guess I, you've told us what happened, but I'm, I'm interested in why this happened. The why, it's not as much as the constituency. But on, maybe even to the contrary, what the Chinese wanted to do was to take away our industry. We even sued them under the Obama administration and accused them of anti-dumping, meaning that they were selling product for less than what they was costing them to produce. And so because we didn't think ahead of what is this doing to our industry, they essentially took us out of business. And we didn't really care because we think about things in a free market. We always talk about we want this to be in a free market. And one actor in this free market was acting exactly the opposite. They were subsidizing and pouring money into it and using their influence around the world to take over the supply chain. And once we lost the supply chain, we lost the industry. So if in 2010, we were the dominant solar power manufacturer, Today, we barely even exist. Hmm. But that's all about to change. Hmm. So before we let you go, how do you want consumers to think about this? I want to loop back to where we started our conversation. You know, when people are thinking about their own purchases for their own household, they're generally thinking about, like, what can I afford and what will serve my needs? Your job is to 
help the country, help the, the president, help the country think about energy, not just as a sort of a tool for lifestyle, but also as a matter of national security, right? So how do you want consumers to think about this? And do you think that they are, given you know all the things that we've talked about? So a couple of things. I, I think you raised an excellent point. First, I hope that consumers are shopping for electric and hybrid vehicles and are finding affordable options. And I think the more interest we have, the more we can bring down the price. But I think consumers should also be interested in the national security aspect. And consumers should also tell their members of Congress, tell their elected officials, voice their concerns that they would rather buy things and inquire about, is this coming from China? Is there any bad uh, labor practices? Is this coming from slave labor origins? How do I make sure that I want them to buy these products, but also tell their members of Congress, we want to buy an electric vehicle and know that it did not come from certain regions or provinces that are exploiting their workers in order to get this. And I think that dual message will help us get to what I think is we need, what we need, a bipartisan approach that says, this is not about fossil fuels versus renewables. The world is going towards an electric future. That was Amos Hochstein. He is a special advisor to President Biden on global infrastructure and energy security. Amos Hochstein, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This past week, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak concluded negotiations with the European Union on an updated plan for trading arrangements in Northern Ireland. Since Brexit, the rules on moving goods there have remained a contentious topic for politicians and business owners alike. Villa Marx has this report. It's a quiet day at Desk Warehouse, an office furniture supply company in the Northern Irish capital of Belfast. But for owner Alistair Mulligan, the past few years have been busy not always for the best of reasons. Things have been a mess in terms of uh, sourcing goods from the rest of mainland UK, bureaucracy caused by Brexit. Mulligan, who says most people in Northern Ireland consider Brexit a mistake, has seen his supply chain completely transformed over the past couple of years. We probably lost, I think, four suppliers who are all very, very reputable companies, but they literally can't be bothered with the hassle of trying to deliver into Northern Ireland. That hassle comes down to extra paperwork that the Brexit deal signed by Boris Johnson created for companies in Northern Ireland that buy things from elsewhere in the UK. That's because the European Union didn't want anything from Britain turning up in Europe without it facing customs checks, and Northern Ireland was considered a potential backdoor. The ironic thing has been we, we source a lot of product from Eastern Europe, uh, particularly from Lithuania and Poland. That's easy to do, absolutely no problems, no obscure or unnecessary paperwork. Yet if we buy from suppliers in England who want to supply us directly and who need to fill that paperwork in themselves, quite often just refuse to do it because it's so difficult. As a consequence, he started buying from further afield, including China, and he stopped selling into mainland UK, once a fifth of his business. And he says he hasn't been able to hire more employees. So he actually seems quite excited about Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's newly announced deal with the EU, known as the Windsor Framework. I'm hoping that that is going to uh, uh, radically change what we're doing at the moment and uh, reduce or replace a lot of the unnecessary paperwork we have to do. Beyond the bureaucracy, another big challenge has been the lack of an active government in Northern Ireland for the past year. A major pro-UK political party has been refusing to participate in the local parliament in protest at a key part of the original Brexit deal known as the Northern Ireland Protocol, 
They say it created an artificial barrier between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Being held to ransom over the protocol by one particular party is, is extremely frustrating. Sarah Williams works in the arts in Belfast, where she spoke to NPR in a local cafe. We have a lot we want to progress across all the areas that we work in, and we are constantly being held up with barriers because we don't have a government who can help make those decisions. Ross Johnson runs a stationery store called The Hunter Paper Company and says Sunak's New Deal will be well received if it can somehow help kickstart political compromise in the North. If it gets the parties back around the table and talking to each other and hopefully back in the government, which is what we direly need, then yes, it is a positive thing. Alistair Mulligan, the furniture business owner, hopes for the same, that the politicians can look forward, just as most people in Northern Ireland have managed to do, given the country's violent history. We've had to move on, and the same applies with the current situation. We'll have to compromise, we'll have to move on for sake of politics and civility in this country. And, he says, for a less bureaucratic business future. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. For years, American girl dolls have showcased how young girls lived at different moments in U.S. history, like the American Revolution and the Civil War. The company's newest dolls are here to teach young kids about another period in history, 1999. You know, dial-up internet, inflatable furniture, and landline phones. But that has some 90s kids in their feelings. To children, this is history. And they have no idea what uh, some of these things are. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, the women behind these dolls share what they're trying to teach young kids about the 90s. You can listen on the radio by asking your smart speaker to play your member station by name or on NPR.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR, and thanks for listening. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, we're headed to a giant convention, one that celebrates one of the most popular television franchises out there, The Real Housewives. At 7 on the TED Radio Hour, using humor as a tool across all aspects of our lives. It's been a minute at 6, the TED Radio Hour at 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander, performing Bartok and Tchaikovsky at Symphony Hall, March 10th, bostonphil.org. The WBUR app is the easiest way to follow the news each day. One tap to listen live, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The head of the U.N.'s nuclear agency says Iran pledged to restore cameras and other monitoring equipment at its nuclear sites and to allow more inspections at a facility where particles of uranium enriched, nearly weapons grade, were recently detected.
Walgreens isn't distributing abortion pills in states where Republican officials have threatened legal action, including a few where abortion is still available. But the pharmacy chain says it is still taking steps to dispense the drug in most states where abortion remains legal. In Tunisia, thousands of people marched through the country's capital today, angry over the crackdown on opposition voices and the proposed lifting of subsidies for food and other goods. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Jarl and Pamela Moen, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Earlier this week, Chicago voters decided that Mayor Lori Lightfoot would not have a second term. We were fierce competitors in these last few months, um, but I will be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver uh, for the people of the city for years to come. Back in 2019, Lightfoot made history as the city's first black woman mayor and first openly gay mayor. This week, however, she also became the first mayor in Chicago to lose a re-election bid in decades. Like other mayors elsewhere, Lightfoot faced some once-in-a-generation challenges, like guiding a city through the worldwide COVID pandemic, as well as some typical ones, like fights with the police and teachers' unions and frosty relations with some of her fellow elected officials. But Chicago Tribune columnist Laura Washington told NPR that one problem seemed to stand out. The top issue was public safety and crime. Chicago has been experiencing a surge in crime, particularly violent crime, in the last several years. Lightfoot said her administration was responsible for the 20 percent drop in shootings and a 14 percent drop in homicides from 2021 to 2022. But for voters, that didn't change the fact that there were still 695 homicides last year, among the city's highest tally since 1999. While a lot of the blame for the city's ongoing crime problem fell on Lightfoot, Washington says the situation is more complicated. The city has, is dealing with many social and economic problems and challenges. There's not enough of city money being devoted to anti-violence programs, to social service programs. We just went through a pandemic. We went through uh, social unrest around the city. And some of that, I think, is responsible for creating the instability. But I think voters expect her to be able to, you know, she's the mayor, they expect her to be able to solve the problem. The reasons for crime may be complex, but it's a good bet that Chicago voters will look to their next mayor to do the job they felt Lightfoot could not. Paul Vallis, a former CEO of the city's school district, and Brandon Johnson, a Cook County commissioner, both Democrats, are headed to the April runoff. Vallis has already staked out his territory as the candidate who will be tough on crime. And in his eyes, that means more support and more money for the police. Public safety is the fundamental right 
of every American. It is a civil right. Meanwhile, Brandon Johnson was once aligned with the defund the police movement that found its voice in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in 2020. While he now downplays that idea, he still prefers to emphasize community-based anti-violence programs and improved social services. If we're going to have a safe city, we do what safe American cities do around the country, and that's invest in people. So promoting detectives within the rank and file. But again, our mental health centers have to be reopened. We need to have front responders that can respond to the 911 calls that are mental health crises. So we're promoting 200 more detectives within the rank and file. We're opening up our mental health clinics and making sure that our first responders, um, our social workers and uh, EMTs, because nearly 40% of the 911 calls that come through um, are mental health crises. So. We're attacking the root causes, but we're also dealing with the immediate crisis of public safety. Violent crime is up in cities and in suburbs, in so-called blue states and red. But no matter where people live, people who feel under siege are looking to elect leaders who can deal with a problem that can be literally about life and death. Strategies for reducing violent crime often diverge along party lines and even within the parties. But do we really even know what works? And if so, what's getting in the way of solutions? We asked two analysts who have been researching and working on strategies to reduce violence and crime for years for their take. The truth of the matter is people want police. Um, they want protection. Jerron Smith is a fellow with Right on Crime, a conservative criminal justice reform group. He's also an organizer with Public Safety Solutions for America, a coalition he launched to help communities implement effective strategies to reduce crime. And Smith is convinced that robust, consistent funding for police departments is key. We think that um, police organizations uh, need to have uh, access to permanent funding. Um, we think that's the proper role of government. Too many uh, law enforcement agencies depend on fines and fees, and we think that creates perverse incentives um, around how they police. In so many different circumstances, police spend like 7% of their time actually dealing with solving um, violent crime. And so um, with the increase in violent crime across the country, it's important that they have the, um, the resources they need to focus on that time and maybe look at other models like co-responder services um, where they would partner with mental health professionals or people who specialize in homelessness will give them more time to focus on violent crime. Smith says that while his organization has a focus on strengthening police, he says he also believes in improving support for communities that have long lived with the consequences of disinvestment and neglect, communities that also disproportionately bear the brunt of violent crime. He says that for a holistic approach to crime reduction to succeed, partisan politics needs to take a back seat. I think crime is, depending on where you live, it can be like the number one issue that you think about um, or like a secondary issue. Um, I think for those who live in the suburbs, it's maybe secondary if they're thinking about maybe coming to um, urban areas and, and don't want to risk, you know, um, being carjacked or being robbed. Um, but then there's people who've historically lived in these communities and just seen um, their communities get worse where it's a primary issue for them. Um, and uh, I think we need to do something about it. I think that America no longer needs to kind of move forward on um, being this tale of two cities, but we need our politicians and elected leaders um, to take it seriously and not politicize this issue. If you're going to sustainably reduce crime and violence, it has to be done with the permission of impacted communities, and they have to see the work as fair and legitimate. 
Thomas Abt is the founding director of the University of Maryland Center for the Study and Practice of Violence Reduction and an associate professor there. He says the goal of the nonpartisan center is to save lives, to stop violent crime by promoting solutions backed by research and real-world evidence. He also advised outgoing Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot at one time. So I started by asking him his take on her loss and if he agrees that it was mainly a result of her record on crime. You know, when you look at the spike in violent crime, it hasn't just happened in Chicago. It's happened all around the country. And there's three broad explanations for this surge. It's the pandemic, it's the social unrest following the murder of George Floyd, and it's a surge in gun sales, many of which ultimately and fairly fast ended up in the hands of criminals. None of those three factors are actually under mayor's control, but mayors do have a say in what happens in their cities. And here's the key thing to understand. Crime and violence reduction is a team sport. And the mayor is the coach of that team. And that team doesn't succeed unless its individual players work well. Police, community groups, treatment and service providers, faith leaders. And I think what we saw in Chicago is that uh, Mayor Lightfoot's well-known, relatively combative style was a real challenge to her. It wasn't really ideological. It was that she couldn't bring people together. Uh, and keep them together in a common purpose. So when you look at murder rates, for example, Chicago is, an, is not number one on the list of American cities, interestingly enough. I think that some people might be surprised by that. But that doesn't change how it feels if you live there. It doesn't change how you feel if it's a relative or loved one of yours who's gotten shot no matter where that is. But it does raise some questions about perception. You remember back in 2017, former President Trump decided that he was going to make, you know, an example of Chicago like he has other cities who are that are run by Democrats, okay? He tweeted that killings had reached epidemic proportions. He said he was going to send federal help to Chicago to fight crime. So when we talk about this issue... Does perception play a role in how we think about it? It absolutely plays a role. And I think that we're having a relatively unhealthy national conversation about crime and justice. On one hand, we have some who are demagoguing the issue, sensationalizing it. But on the other hand, you have some folks who uh, basically say, look, because it's not as bad as it was in the late 80s and early 90s, which it isn't, that there's really nothing to see here and we shouldn't worry about it. And they basically try to change the subject when people bring up valid concerns. And so what I say again and again is the surge in violent crime, which is real, is a cause for concern, but not panic. So, you know, in 2022, we're down 4% on homicides. From what year? Uh, from the previous year, from 2021 to 2022. But we're up about 34% over the pandemic entirely. And so it's hard to sort of strike the right balance. But that's exactly what we need. We need balance. So let me just see if I hear what you're saying. You're saying overall violent crime is nowhere near the levels of the 1990s. But there has been a rise in violent crime since 2020, which is when the pandemic started, when we understood that it was a pandemic, when the big societal shutdowns really like all over the world. And what I think I hear you saying is on the one hand, that there are people who are amplifying it and calling it basically a democratic problem and it's because these people aren't doing their job. But you also say that there's a countervailing group of people who are minimizing it. 
Who are those people? Who's doing that? Well, that's some some folks on the left who are feeling defensive uh, as they're being attacked uh, by the right. And they are, in some circumstances, so concerned about undermining their movement for criminal justice reform that they're really worried that the fears of crime could undo that. But I think it's really important to understand about the violent crime surge that it happened everywhere. It happened in red states. It happened in blue states. It happened in cities. It happened in suburbs and rural counties. It happened in cities that are led by Republicans and cities that are led by Democrats. So it's not a Republican-Democrat issue. But I think the other thing is, is that we really shouldn't be scapegoating criminal justice reform efforts. There's really no evidence that criminal justice reform is responsible for this spike. As I said, it was the pandemic, this social unrest in the, in the wake of George Floyd, which was really triggered by an incident of police violence, and then this massive surge in guns. More broadly, though, I think what people say, it's the defund the police movement, which they say has led to a lack of respect for the police and a lack of respect for the law enforcement authority, and a lot of police quitting. Is there any validity to that? There's some validity to that. And, you know, some of the critiques uh, of policing and of the criminal justice system go too far. But what I would say is, is we do also have to sort of begin at the beginning, which is, you know, where did this criticism come from? It came from highly controversial, highly publicized incidents of police violence. The protests didn't come from nothing. And so the protests are a response to a real problem. And we have to address that problem while maintaining public safety. And so, I, you know, this is the challenge. You know, you're either with the police or you're against the police. You're either concerned about social justice or all you're concerned about is violent crime. And the fact of the matter is we've got to be able to do multiple things at the same time. And in fact, if we make the system more fair and more legitimate, it'll be better at solving crimes, not worse. I guess I'm still I'm still kind of struggling with this question of why is this so hard? Why is this so hard to to achieve violence reduction? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, let's say your mother gets hit over the head at the bus stop, you know, trying to go to work. You don't really care, you know, who, you know, the Republican or Democratic approach is not what's most present with you. It's people just want to live without being, you know, afraid for their safety. Right. And it's just I'm just why is this so hard? I think there's three reasons. Uh, I've thought a lot about this, and I've come up against this uh, for many years. I think the first reason is that the public safety solutions that work best don't really fit neatly with the political talking points of either the left or the right. So they don't appeal to the base because they're a little bit conservative. They're a little bit progressive. They're a messy mix of both. The second thing is they're a little bit more complicated than just get all the guns off the street or just lock everybody up. They're research and evidence informed. They take longer to explain, which is tough in in today's sort of social media environment. And the last thing I think we just have to be honest about is that they disproportionately impact the most disadvantaged and disenfranchised people uh, in our country. These issues predominantly or disproportionately impact poor communities of color. And that warps the way we address it because they lack the political power to insist on these sensible solutions. And it makes it easier to sort of talk past these communities and make it about ideology and not problem solving. 
Thomas Abt is a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice. He leads a new institute at the University of Maryland focused on reducing violence. And he's the author of Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. You're listening to NPR News. After years of legal battles, the music of the iconic hip-hop group De La Soul is now streaming on major platforms. But for those of you who aren't familiar with their sound, we've called Oliver Wang to help us out. He's a professor of sociology at California State University, Long Beach. He's also a DJ and a huge De La Soul fan. So we called him to talk about a few must-listen tracks from the group's catalog. Greetings, girl, and welcome to my world of phrasing right up to back. It's the daisy age, you're about to walk top stage, so wipe your lottoes on the mat. For the De La Newbie, I would recommend starting with my personal favorite, which is a song called I Know, released on their debut album from 1989, Three Feet High and Rising. Let me lay my hand across yours and aim a kiss. The reason why I chose I Know, even though it's maybe not the best known single off of this album, is that it was the song that for me, as a high school, I think junior or senior, when I first heard this song, it made me just want to listen to anything else that sounded like this. So it was my gateway into hip hop and that literally and figuratively changed my life. Ego Trip in part two was featured on the group's third album, Balloon Mind State. And I think it's both one of the best musical productions that, not just on this album, it's just one of their best musical productions in general. Now I'm something like a phenomenon. I'm something like a phenomenon. Well, I'm the hourglass cat. Drug it out of jack for chill. I the phenomenon. A lot of Ego Trip in part two is really built off of using or reusing famous lyrical snippets from people like Run DMC, Boogie Down Productions, Pete Rock and Seal Smooth. And so there's a lot of Easter eggs that are embedded in this track that is a reminder that De La didn't just see themselves as being important artists, but they always wanted to give respect to the artists that they grew up around and were their contemporaries that they had a lot of admiration for. Sticks is high. It's as if the group had transformed into becoming these elder statesmen of hip hop. This album and this song was trying to, I think, establish a kind of new moral center to hip hop, one that was meant to be a critique of the glamorization from their perspective of gangsterism and of drug dealing. I'm obviously biased, but I would certainly consider De La's music to be essential listening. And I think, you know, one big reason is that their presence coming around when they did in the late 80s, it really opened up our imagination about what was possible in hip hop and in a way that I don't think just transformed for listeners the idea of what was possible, 
but had a huge impact on countless artists that followed them. You talk to groups like The Roots, you talk to someone like uh, Yasin Bey, aka Most Def. Uh, so many artists will point to De La's emergence as being this almost fundamental shift in how they thought what was possible for themselves as being artists, that this opened up a space where you could be a misfit, a nerd, a geek, uh, you know, whatever else, and still be viable and still be able to make a statement that was compelling and interesting. That was Oliver Wang, a professor, a DJ, and culture writer based in Los Angeles. He wrote about even more must-listen tracks from De La Soul for NPR. You can check that out at NPR.org. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, we head to a giant convention that celebrates one of the most popular TV franchises out there, The Real Housewives. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Start your Sunday tomorrow morning with 90.9 WBUR. You'll get the latest on real estate investments for low-income people. You'll also play the Sunday Puzzle with Puzzle Master Will Shorts. Weekend Edition Sunday starts at 8 a.m. It runs until 11 a.m. 35 degrees cloudy in Boston at 539. WBUR supporters include the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective with K-I-S-S-I-N-G a funny date night play and love letter to our city. Now through April 2nd, HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukrainian troops are helping civilians flee the eastern Tanabak mood, which Russian forces have bombed and shelled for months. Military analysts say Ukrainian soldiers may be preparing to pull out of the besieged city, but Ukrainian officials say there are no plans to retreat. China's annual session of parliament starts this weekend. Lawmakers are expected to approve a sweeping reshuffle of government jobs, a new economic growth target, and a budget that will likely include a boost in defense spending. And Tesla is recalling more vehicles, this time for a new issue related to potentially insecure seats. That's in addition to the nearly two dozen recalls affecting millions of vehicles in the past year alone. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Doors Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. In the early months of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine's supply lines were abruptly cut off. One of the supplies people could no longer get 
abortion pills. NPR's Rough Translation podcast followed the story of a secret effort to resupply Ukrainian doctors. Because of the potential legal consequences for some involved in this mission, many people in the story we're about to hear are only referred to by one name or no name at all. Also, we'd like you to know that this piece refers to sexual violence. Rough Translation host Gregory Warner and reporter Katz Laszlo tell the story. When Katz and I arrived in Ukraine this past October, everyone told us, if you're doing a story about abortion, you have to talk to Galina Maestruk. Yeah, I know. I know. You, you sent me so many messages, just, <laughs> just like lovers in pre- previous times. Yeah. Exactly. We met Maestruk at her office in Kyiv. Her organization is the Ukrainian partner for International Planned Parenthood. I'm an OBGYN. Maestrik has been but, practicing uh, medicine for four decades, and abortion has been legal for her whole career. And 10 years ago, abortion pills came on the market. But when Russia invaded in February 2022, first of all, supply chains to the country were cut off. We have no air connection. We have no ship connection. So by mid-April, about seven weeks after the Russian invasion. No, no. No pills at all at this time. And because of this, doctors were worried. Just a heads up, most of the Ukrainian doctors you'll hear from in this story asked us not to use their last names to protect their privacy at work. This doctor in Kyiv, her first name is Olga, said that in the early months of the invasion, three to five times more women were showing up in her office and asking for abortion pills. We realized that women would come and come and come and there are going to be more and more of them. But the pills, there's not going to be more of them. And we didn't know if there's going to be any. But what those doctors did not know was that tens of thousands of abortion pills were making their way to Ukraine, donated by a major supplier of those pills. Are you comfortable with us calling you supplier? Yeah, why not? We agreed not to use the supplier's name because of the way he got the pills into Ukraine. See, abortion is legal in Ukraine, but there were no planes flying into Ukraine after the invasion. So the fastest way that the supplier saw to get those pills into the country was to take them by land across Poland. But Poland has some of the strictest abortion laws in the region. In Poland, it's illegal to give someone abortion pills. I didn't want the Polish customs to find any mifepristone. Mifepristone is one of the drugs in the medical abortion kit. The other drug is misoprostol. If these pills are labeled misoprostol and mifepristone, it's a big problem. So the supplier's solution was to take the medicine out of its packaging, out of its labels, and pour it in bulk into plastic bags. Imagine a bunch of plastic bags with 75,000 loose pills inside. And actually, you need multiple pills for an abortion, so that's enough for about 15,000 abortions. The supplier then flew those bags to Poland, where they were handed off to a chain of volunteers. And one of those volunteers on the chain was a Ukrainian woman named Evgenia. She has an NGO that delivers medical supplies. It looks like a drug packing. I don't, I don't want to touch it. She's taking a huge risk. If she's arrested or in any way compromised because of this delivery, her charity work could be jeopardized. I'm definitely not against abortion, but it was like a... Why we should bring it in this amount, it's a large amount, to Ukraine, into Ukraine to take it. And the reason, the first reason, was rape um, cases. The request that first sparked this donation of pills was a plea on behalf of women raped by Russian soldiers. And here I became a bit sad. I mean, I need to, to do this. Yevgenia and her friends get to the border crossing. And to their relief, the Polish border guard waves them through, doesn't check the bags. 
Soon after, Yevgenia is back at home, getting in touch with doctors, including Galina Maestrich. Connection with Yevgenia was like magic situation. Galina calls all the doctors she can think of across the country. I called to Vinnytsa, to Poltava, to Dnipro, and to Odessa. We started to contact doctors, and they started to tell about us to other doctors. From Kherson, from Nikolaev, from Donetsk, from Zaporizhia. We started to receive the um, mails and telephones, like, uh, can you bring it to us? The first second that I heard about this story, I was immediately like, what was this like for the women who needed the pills? But when we tried to reach out, none of those women were willing to come forward. But we did talk to the people that they talked to. We talked to their friends and their doctors. They all came with a really strict decision, strong decision to, for abortion. Dr. Olga, who we heard from earlier, is one of the doctors who received the pills. I didn't have any case when woman told me uh, that she experienced that sexual violence or raping. Or, so, and we didn't ask them on purpose, like we didn't ask them this question. Another doctor we met, Valentina, told us about this woman who came to her from the east, from the city of Sloviansk. She told me, I had in Sloviansk everything. I had two flats. I had house near seaside. I have two restaurants. Now I am bums. Now I'm a bum. Now I am bums. I don't know what I should do with my child. She said, I already have a child to take care of. And I just lost my house. I lost my money. I should be healthy, uh, strong, and to have time and uh, energy for my one child. We heard stories of patients where the war came into their lives, changed their environment, their living situation, their relationships, their income, and they knew they needed these pills. But we also heard stories that went beyond abortion. And that revelation, it started with Dr. Oksana. Her hospital is in Lviv, near the train station, and she sees local patients and also patients who fled fighting in the east. And these are a lot more complicated cases, more complications with pregnancies and more issues with pregnancy. Everyone is in a lot of stress. Do you mean that uh, just because of the stress, um, like there's more complications like miscarriage and stuff like that? Yeah, that's right. When the war starts, we have a lot of complications of pregnancy. This is Diana. She's a gynecologist in Kharkiv, really close to the front lines. And she described having a day where... All women get to our hospital by ambulance with bleedings. Every single woman that came in was hemorrhaging. When doctors see these complications happening, they can reach for these pills because it's really dangerous if a miscarriage doesn't complete. Like if anything is left in your womb, then you can get pretty serious infections. So you take the pills and then those pills make sure that your uterus is completely cleared out. In the case of bleeding, you don't actually need both pills. Doctors would just go for misoprostol. That's the pill that causes the contractions. And so when you have that contraction, it clamps down on the blood vessels and essentially it stops the bleeding. We come to Ukraine to do a story about abortion pills and war. But it was only when we were in the country, where doctors had been running out of pills because of the war, that we could see the story of this medicine was so much bigger. 
for all the risk people took to smuggle these pills into Ukraine, all the concerns they had over being arrested because of Polish abortion laws, most of these pills were used either to help women safely give birth or to deal with the complications of pregnancy. Since that April shipment we were following, there's been more deliveries of abortion pills. Since the mail systems are back on, those pills were mailed instead of smuggled over the border. And we went to the place where those pills are being kept. Like the stack is taller than us. So 24, 25, It was so dramatically casual. We're just standing in this guy's apartment and each of these pills is, is a story. It's someone's story, a moment in their life, whether that's pregnancy or a complication or a family decision or pressure, a traumatic event or just something they'll forget. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. Evgenia says they now have more than enough pills. Some of them may even expire. But the hope is that they'll never have to go back to a situation like in April, that they'll never run out. All right, and then we step it back into a beautiful day, you would never guess. That was reporter Katz Laszlo and Rough Translation host Gregory Warner. To hear the full story of the smuggled pills and how war is complicating the abortion conversation in Ukraine, check out NPR's Rough Translation podcast. Some of the same communities that once prosecuted the sale of weed are now regulating and taxing it. So now one of the big questions in the budding industry is if there's a way to achieve equity for the people who were most affected by the punitive frameworks of the past. Punishment for selling and using weed fell far more heavily on some people and groups than others. So now the question is, is there a way to make sure those people and groups get to participate in and profit from the changes that have made weed a $30 billion industry? Back in 2018, Massachusetts was the first state to establish a social equity program with that in mind. So now we're going to meet somebody who stands to benefit. Devin Alexander was arrested for distributing and possessing marijuana in 2011. But just last month, his cannabis delivery business, Rolling Relief, that's L-E-A-F, was licensed in the city of Newton, Massachusetts. And he's here with us now to tell us more. Devin Alexander, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Do you mind if we go back to that day in 2011 when you were arrested? I, I think you were 17, right? And you were in a car with a couple of guys. Could you just tell me a little bit about what happened? My two friends in the front just happened to be Caucasian. And you are? African-American. Hmm. We got pulled over. They tried to say we were speeding, but we weren't speeding. There was an odor of cannabis in the vehicle. And I was the only one they pulled out of the car and searched. And they found three bags of marijuana on my possession, which the total street value was no more than $60. So they arrested me. And I was uh, I was put in a holding cell for about eight hours. Um, had to get bailed out. And then, you know, just had to keep making court appearances. And I had plans of joining the U.S. Air Force. But, you know, due to my arrest, you know, those plans got derailed. So it was... Really tough to see friends that are going off to college and going off into the military. And then, you know, you're just kind of stuck behind trying to figure out what you can really do next with your life. Oh, wow. You were arrested, but were you convicted? Did you have to uh, no, spend we fought any time? It. No, none of it. Um, they tried to offer me probation, but we still fought it because I felt that that would be an admission of guilt. So we just paid some fines. And then they dismissed it. But it really kind of derailed your plans just having been arrested. Exactly. We went to the recruiter 
down the street and, you know, me and my mother and we talked to them, told them what happened. It's like, yeah, no, we can't accept you. So now you have a, a state sanctioned delivery business. Can you just tell me a little bit about what it means to you that you can legally do what you were once arrested for? Exactly. Especially on doing it on the same streets too of Quincy. So we deliver on the same streets that I was arrested on. It's mind blowing. It is. It's a lot. It's a lot to, you know, comprehend. So that arrest happened when I was 17. You know, I'm 29 now. I'll be 30 in September. I got arrested and people just talked down on me and said I'd never do anything in my life, never go anywhere in life. I have to deal around with weed. And now I win awards and I do public speaking events. And people call me a bright young entrepreneur. I haven't changed anything. So as I understand it, the social equity program is meant to try to, I guess the, the phrase I would use is restorative justice. Does it feel that way to you? Do you feel like in a way that it's sort of compensation for the state saying it was wrong? Yeah, but um, my story is just one of many. And there's still, you know, even as I talk to you right now, there are still individuals incarcerated for cannabis. I feel like they want to look at it as a form of reparations. So in addition with this new reform bill that was passed last August, the state is going to create what is called the Social Equity Trust Fund where it's going to be, you know, a state-sanctioned trust fund where social equity entrepreneurs will be able to get small interest loans and grants from the state, and the money gets pulled from the excise tax that they put on cannabis. Massachusetts has brought in over $4 billion in revenue since we legalized in 2016. But, you know, there hasn't been any loans I think a lot of the, the big model that people look at is, you know, Oakland, California. They were doing that with their equity applicants. They're the ones that really put out there, hey, these people need these low interest loans and these grants because this is so tough. We can't go and get a traditional small business loan. So you're really at the will of private investors. And you know, there's a lot of predatory practices that are going on and still go on today. So having this social equity trust fund is going to be huge for us. That whole question about loans. Cannabis remains a Schedule One drug under federal law. That means those are drugs that, according to the U.S. government, have no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. When marijuana was placed on Schedule One at the time, it was seen as partly racist. Critics now look at that and say that that was really intended to offer an opportunity to incarcerate certain people, right? A hundred percent. And it goes back to Richard Nixon, to Ronald Reagan, even all the way back when, in 1930s, to Henry Aslinger, African-Americans and Caucasians both used cannabis at similar rates, but the African-American individual was four times more likely to be arrested for it than their Caucasian counterpart. Well, so there are still people who feel that this is just wrong. So for people who feel that way, is there is there something you would want to say? Yeah. Look at the number of cannabis deaths. How many people have died from cannabis compared to stuff that's legal? You go to a local brewery, people bring their kids their dogs, their wife, drink alcohol that's you know, in the 10% range, load up the car and drive home, and nobody bats an eye. You know, we're very discreet with delivery. It's like we're bringing it, we're giving people incentive to stay home. We're bringing it right to their front door. You know, there's been so many years of, you know, just saying no, we're on drugs propaganda. We really have to undo all the miseducation that has come across these past decades. That was Devin Alexander. He's the owner of Rolling Relief, and that's R-E-L-E-A-F. It's a marijuana delivery service in Newton, Massachusetts. Devin Alexander, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Michelle. 